The Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast is with you to talk through what you're watching, listening to, and reading. What you need to check out this weekend, what you can skip next, it's all fair game. For pop culture in high spirits, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. My name is Frida Hughes, and my book is called George, a Magpie Memoir. And it's a book about obsession, love, and a relationship that, um, that brought actually quite a lot of joy into my life for the period that it existed. Frida Hughes is an animal lover. From dogs to birds and even a python, she's raised them all. Her new book, George, a Magpie Memoir, follows the period in her life in which she rescued and raised a magpie that she found outside her home. Through the experience, she learned a great deal about herself and some of her closest relationships. I recently spoke with Frida Hughes about the magpie, George, the dynamics between her animals, and what it's like being the daughter of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Now, when you wrote this book, you had just found a home in Wales. When you found it, you said it was your forever home. But then it became a place of work and obligation. In your book, you said there was always another self-inflicted challenge that keeps you working on it. Is that the same for your writing? I mean, how do you know when a project is done? Ah, that's a very good question, Beth. Um, when do I know a project is done? When I'm writing, it's when I actually start correcting things and make it worse. And then I know I'm overthinking it and I'm overdoing it. And when I'm painting, same thing. I did that once. I stayed up all night to finish a painting. And as I went to bed at about four o'clock in the morning, I thought, do you know what? A little flash of red would be really lovely there. And it wasn't. <laughs> and I had to scrape off the entire painting. It completely ruined it. And I had to do it all over again. And it was a very different painting. So I learned, I learned my lesson. It's like, no, stop, think, go away, come back to it fresh. And if when I'm fresh, I look at it and I think, okay, there, there's a gap there. But actually, the best advice I have for anybody is when you think something is finished um, or when you think you're almost finished, walk away, put it down, walk away, give yourself a night's sleep and you're a different person in the morning. You have different eyes or at least I feel I have different eyes. When you arrived at this forever home in Wales, you met George. Can you introduce George to our listeners? George was a scrap of a magpie. He was... Barely, he, he didn't fill my palm. He had a few black and white feathers, but basically his tummy and lots of bits of him were still naked and his feathers were still growing. He couldn't fly, he couldn't walk. And his two siblings, one had died and one died in, in the house, sadly. I had visions of having two of them. And um, they were blown out of a nest in a storm, a really ferocious storm. And I took George in. I had no idea how to look after something so young. I've looked after lots of birds and lots of animals in my life, but never anything this young. And he saved his life as well. I should say I was about to sever him um, in half with a spade because I was maniacally gardening as I do. I'm still obsessed with gardening. And he shrieked in time. And he had to give a couple of shrieks because I was a bit thick and couldn't find him at first. <laughs> Too many leaves. And then he started to demand attention and food. And I realized that if I was going to keep him alive, he was going to have to become top priority, which 
considering the background of the um, my overzealous attention on the garden and a slightly crumbling marriage at the time, I was very willing to be distracted. And George made very sure that I colluded in his survival. Now, George takes, you know, he takes a big chunk of the book, but you you also rescued other birds. Talk to me about the types of birds you are attracted to, because it seems like you like smart birds. Ducks do not have much of a personality. And the kind kinds of birds you rescue are crippled in a way. They can't operate to their full extent. In an interview you gave to The Guardian, you said, the birds had to be unwanted and they had to need care, birds that could not otherwise fly free. What draws you to these birds? Uh, well, the birds that I have currently at the moment are owls. Not the brightest, <laughs> but actually rather lovely to have. They don't need ex- lots of exercise like hawks. I do like corvids and raptors. There's no doubt about it. There's something about their ferocity and their willfulness and their um, and actually and their intelligence. But corvids are, I think, the most superior and intelligent. But these owls were born in captivity, brought up in captivity, and then for some reason, either the zoo could no longer keep them or the owners, if they were private owners, couldn't keep them. Um, I'm sort of full up now. I have 14 um, varying owls, six Eurasians, which are very large, sort of two foot high, and three of them come in at night just for a couple of hours to play around because I did hand rear them from eggs. Two of them came as eggs. Uh, there's a little snowy owl who lives in the kitchen, damaged wing from a zoo. There's a little boreal owl, tiny, tiny little six inch thing, little wonky feet. Again, zoo. Um, they can't sit, if they can't sit on a perch, they can't go outside. And if they can't go outside, the zoo can't keep them or the charity can't keep them. So I have a couple of those barn owls, three, a uh, two white faced scops owls, owls, and now a little uh, Indian, um, Indian scops owl. So altogether 14, I think I'm done now. (laughs) The thing that draws me to birds and animals that need assistance is a sort of inherent desire to make the difference between their survival and maybe they wouldn't survive or they'd be down. I can't save everything. And I learned that as I was growing up and saving wounded, limping things. And of course, I caught them because they were wounded and limping and dying usually. <laughs> so as a child, I was a permanently disappointed child and it came to wild creatures. And oh, look, I found another little bird. Oh, whoops, it's dead. Um, <laughs> so I, I've become quite pragmatic about what I can save. And it is, it is something in there need i suppose in a way i'd like to i mean i would like not to say i identify with them actually to be honest but i probably do just a little bit it's that thing of this thing can't manage on its own oh i remember times when i couldn't manage on my own i could have done i could have done with a little bit of saving i don't know and so if i can do something then it's a it's a lovely thing to do little time consuming but because i work at home and i'm self employed that's what makes it possible. If I didn't paint and write, and if I was working in office, it would be difficult, and I wouldn't be able to give them the attention that they need. I was wondering if there were parallels between you and the animals that you take care of, because <laughs> you mentioned your chronic fatigue and you know the bad back, and so, and you've answered. You do see a little bit of yourself in those animals. If you saw me bouncing around the garden now, you'd think, "Where's her bad back?" <laughs> um, I've learned to marry. I've learned to manage pain over the years a lot better and I do a lot of weight training 
and I do a lot of exercise. And it's the best way to manage pain. I don't like painkillers. I've taken painkillers before and I've had um, injections in my spine before. Nothing helped, but exercise really did. And the exercise has um, given me my life back. In fact, before this interview, I did shoot down the gym for a quick hour. And so <laughs> sitting sitting is far worse for me. <laughs> so it makes me laugh when I get up because it's like, ouch, that hurts. Chronic fatigue is when I'm stressed. So these days, it's no longer non-negotiable. If I feel something coming on, I look at my life very, very sharply and I think, what is it that I am doing wrong or what is it that's happening on the outside that I haven't given credit to stressing me this much? Because it is a sign of it's a sign of the stress. And of course, in the book, the reason that I was suffering from chronic fatigue was because my marriage wasn't entirely what it might have been. So the stresses were beginning to show. There were a lot of parallels between what was going on in your life and what you were discovering about George, that you both were always trying to find a place for everything. You both have a vibrant sense of curiosity. There were also some profound parallels between George's conflict in deciding where to call home and your ex's resistance to settling down in Wales. So the memoir really wonderfully demonstrates what animals or pets can teach us about ourselves. Were you aware at the time how much George was showing you about yourself, or did this come through more with reflection and revision of your diary entries? Oh, no. I would stand in the kitchen sometime and watch him flying around with a long, thin, doggy schmacko. And it's a kind of dog treat that looks like a gigantic oversized piece of chewing gum. And I'd watch him try and find a place for it and then finally settle on the toaster. And I'd think, my goodness, I would do that. It fits exactly. It's the perfect place. Where else would you put it? And I, I used to study his picking things out that interested him and then finding the perfect shape home for them. Um, a candle went into three hooks on the back of a door. Um, okay, so he would put um, squishy decaying things in the top pockets of my shirts that also hang, hung on the back of the door and he'd stuff frozen peas in the back of my jeans pockets and things like that. So that, that was a little, there were other, he did have some really bad habits. I don't want to spoil it for the readers, but a couple of them, but one of them was really not very nice, but it was quite funny. It's quite funny in retrospect. It was less funny at the time and I could have maybe wrung his little magpie neck. He also had favorites in people. Now, I don't want to compare myself to this so much, but we do, don't we? We have favorites in the people we like and maybe like less. And George, for some reason, picked on the lady who cleaned my house. And I don't know what he did to well, I don't know what she did to him when I wasn't looking. But Corvids apparently can hold grudges. It's been proven. They can, they can recognize people. They can recognize the person who hurt them or put their food or did something mean to them. And they will go for that person. And George went for Mary. Not her real name, but he went for Mary every time she came to clean to the point where he herded it. He would, he would face her against the front door. And I remember one day the bell ringing frantically. And I opened the door and she fell in on top of me and he was standing at her feet, bailing her up, having pecked her feet. And she never went without shoes again. She used to wear sandals a lot. Not after that, she didn't. Um, but also he'd go from room to room because he could fly. So on the outside of the house, 
he would find the window of the room she was cleaning and bang his beak against it, wanting to get at it. So <laughs> very, I should say very human traits, but you'd like to think maybe not. But I think, yes, George, I watched and it was like, it was a little like watching a younger me trying to work life out and organize it. He wanted to organize things too. Talk to me about the illustrations throughout the book, because you said photos never really do the birds justice. How how were you able to better capture their personalities through art? I had a couple of friends come around. They took lots of photos of George. George loved being photographed. He performed. He sat on my shoulders, my head. He sort of kicked at my eyelashes, which was a little unnerving. He pulled at my earrings. He danced around their feet. And they took all these photographs and they thought he was magical. And a couple of days later, one of them phoned up and she said, you know, Frida, I've got all these photographs of us with George. She said, but he's just a little bird. He doesn't come out in his in in the photographs. And I said, well, yes, because you can't photograph his personality. And really what we're all observing, what we were all looking at was his gigantic personality or gigantic, certainly for his size. And what comes out is the little creature that he actually was. And he was he was a darling little creature. And until he reached full adult, adulthood, he was um, a little patchy and, you know, had little ball patches and they used to tug at my heartstrings. And, you know, compared to a wild magpie, he was a little bit shabby, but he did, he did come good in the, he came good in the end, in lots of ways, actually. You were in various stages of several projects while you were caring for George. Your poetry collection, Book of Mirrors, a series of abstract paintings called Mental Mechanics, final edits in your autobiographical book of poetry titled 45, another book of poetry, Out of the Ashes, and even your work on your Times poetry column or children's book. And there was so much mental work there. And then you also had the physical work of putting together your garden. You talked about how focusing on George gave you borrowed energy and an excuse or reason to ignore your other tasks, which is an interesting dynamic. But I'm also curious about how your time with George might have influenced some of these other tasks. Did you see things you learned from George finding their way into your projects? In one sense, I did write poetry about George. So everything you put in front of me eventually gets represent represented rather than represented it gets represented through the prism of my poetry or my painting one way or the other painting george in oils not so interesting he's black and white drawings much more fun because they're actually black and white by definition in the poems there are one or two poems about george and a crow who came afterwards a short-lived crow i mean sad ending but he was at the end of his life and a, a couple of other poems as well. I feel that poems, poetry condenses my emotions and, and vision. So when I was looking at George, when I was writing one of the poems, he was dancing around on the table and then he stopped and he started to meticulously preen himself and preen his feathers. And it was so extraordinary watching him rifle every single bit of his body And it just made me think of a man who'd lost his keys, which is what I write about. He's as thorough as a man who's lost his keys. And it's as if he's searching all his pockets, like, where are my keys? Where are my keys? So they fed, he fed into my life, whether he influenced it certainly in that way. 
whether he influenced me in how I did it, possibly not so much, but as a subject, absolutely. And also as a love object, <laughs> I, just, I was... I was quite surprised. I've loved a lot of animals and a lot of birds, but my love for George was uh, shocked me actually because George, but George engaged me. He was collaborative. He didn't just sit there and maybe fidget with a few objects. He actually used to present the objects or he would pull at me or tug at me, but he wanted to play. He wanted me to join in. And if I didn't join in, if I was on the phone or, you know, friend phone, very like a child. And I always think he's, he was a bit like a three to five-year-old child, but with wings. Uh, so potty training would have been important, <laughs> would have been important. But I would sit on the phone talking to a friend and he would pester. And it was me not giving him attention. And now he wanted attention. So he would demand it and he'd be all over me. And, you know, if I was drawing, he'd be pulling at my pen. And if I was, because quite often I'd sketch as I talked on the phone, I multitasking, my thing. <laughs> and um, you might guess I have to multitask quite a lot. If I'm trying to do everything, I have to multitask as often as possible. And uh, so George was, he was, a I'd like to, I'd, a friend, a human friend is a very different thing, I know. But he was, oddly companionable in a way that the dogs weren't. I had these three little Maltese terriers who I absolutely adored and they came to treat George as one of them and George thought they were family. He saw himself as one of them because he was brought up with them. But they would pad around doing their own thing, not particularly doing anything. Whereas he would come up and say, hey, I'm here, look at me, play. You know, George's interactions with your three rescue dogs were some of the more memorable ways we see his personality develop in the book. And they were a motley crew, and you've got another motley crew now, is that right? I do, yeah. Does your current crew, do they interact with each other uh, the way George did with Snickers and Widget and Mouse? No, I've well done with the names. <laughs> I, I used to look at them and get confused. <laughs> at, at the moment, I have... Two rescue huskies, Sam and Meg, who would kill an owl if they could get their paws on it. I have a python called Shirley, who's now five feet long. I bought her when she was a foot long, so she's done quite well. And I have a very aging ferret called Socks, who's the last remaining ferret from when I had 12, because I used to breed them and, and sell them. And I loved having ferrets, but I've thought, no, I've got too many owls. I'm cutting down on ferrets. And so Socks is the last one. And five chinchillas. None of them really want to meet. None of them want to meet Shirley the python, that's for sure. Um, the owls tolerate each other, which is good. The ferret is, I keep the ferret away from everything because I never know when he just might have a playful nip. So, and the dogs, oh my God, I have a system of locks and doors. And when the dogs come in for supper at night and they come in to play around for a couple of hours, at the same time, I get three of the owls in the utility room where the small owls live, three of the big owls come in, and between the two, there is a very locked, bolted, hooked door. I have to make sure that nothing, you know, they, they do not meet, ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I found so many truths in this book that I could relate to, you know, that, 
you know, guilt is is the force that gets you up in the morning to write and paint or about living with a sense of time that was literally whistling past. And the sooner you achieved things, the sooner you could stop. Did you discover any truths about yourself as you were writing this? I'm sure I did. And it's, it's funny because that's a very good question. And I haven't thought about truths, the truths about me. One of the truths is I'm a workaholic. And that became very evident when I had to stop working to feed George. And it's and it, it's it's actually fed in and I've I've got better. I am endeavoring to get better. I still have a long way to go. But the tr- I think one of the truths about me is admitting um, a couple, I don't know, my traits, because George made me look at how I interacted with other people, and I would very easily put him first, which says a, says a lot about me, doesn't it? Um, that thing of going out to dinner the first time after I'd found him, and having to leave him on his own with the dogs and just not wanting to go and thinking, okay, we're going to get a puncture on the way. I'm going to feel violently sick. I did, well, we, my, my, I call him the ex in the book, um, the ex for obvious reasons. The ex and I got to this dinner. I think I made polite conversation. I wrote in the book. I tried to be entertaining. I enjoyed everybody's company, but it was very much a sort of blur because all I could think about was the magpie. And I realized that I have, I have to work to be with people. I'm very happy with animals. They're non-judgmental. They're furry. They're feathered furry, fun to be with. People are trickier. And I, so the truth that I mostly learned about me was my need to work harder at being a bit more social. I am two people. Part of me is very gregarious. But I can only be gregarious and I can only be among people if I can have time on my own to think, paint, to write and to be with the animals. And then I sort of recharge and I feel as though my brain has had um, some time to, I don't know, recalibrate and reset itself, digest the world and then represent itself again. So I don't know if that answers your question the way you hoped, but. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned in the book that you're often introduced as the daughter of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, and that's precisely how you were introduced to me you know, by your publisher. But because of this, you've struggled to find your own identity. You've written several books. You have art exhibitions. You, have, you had a, a poetry column in The Times. Are there ways your work has consciously tried to break from that association with your parents? It wasn't the work that can break away. People are always going to make comparisons. I tried to break away. I moved to Australia for several years in the 90s. I loved living in Western Australia. And eventually when my father, Ted Hughes, got got cancer, I came home. And it seemed sensible to stay because this is, after all, where I make my living. And even living in Australia, I would still come back to have art exhibitions and to see my publisher and so on. So... The work itself can't break free of that, but my effort to disappear and be somebody else. I mean, in Australia, nobody, nobody knew who they were. I lived several very happy years in Australia. Nobody ever said, you know, who are your parents? Or you are the daughter of, aren't you? In England, just to give you an example, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am so proud of my parents. 
two extraordinary human beings. But I was at a lunch a few weeks ago and somebody, uh, the host, actually, the host comes up to me afterwards and he says, Frida, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot to introduce you as your parents' daughter. And I was speechless because why would that even be a question? My mother has been, been dead since um, February 63. My father's been dead since October 98. It's a very long time in both cases. And Beth, if I introduced you as your parents' daughter, would you not find that just a little odd? Absolutely. And so, but, but this man had apologized for not mentioning them. So when I had my Times Poetry column for all of two years, I embraced that hugely. Because not only was it lovely to have a regular income for a change, I was suddenly Frida Hughes, Times Poetry columnist. And then there wasn't enough breath left in the introducer to actually add my parents on as well. And it would have seemed a bit lengthy. So for two years, I had the absolute joy of being Frida Hughes, Times Poetry columnist. And when I lost my job, they, they retired me to, and put in a sort of adult cartoon. And when I say adult, I don't mean a rude one. I mean just for grown-ups. And it lasted about six months. And, and I realized that it wasn't just losing the income. It was losing that identity. And I had really adopted that identity with vigor. <laughs> it was marvelous. You know, the closing image of the memoir is of a happy rescued owl choosing to stay inside, making a different choice than George. How do you see that as part of George's legacy or of your own changing relationship to the idea of home? And why was that important to skip ahead and and show us this moment? There were a couple of things involved with this. One was when I wrote the book, it was a longer book, a much longer book. And When I read it and read it and read it, it fell into very clearly two halves. And one half was George, but the other half was the owls. And they just didn't sit as a whole book. So I had to take that off. But at the same time, George left me with this legacy because the reason I have 14 owls is entirely his fault. Had he not developed bad habits, had my neighbor not become very frightened of him, I mean, he wasn't vicious or violent. She hated birds and he did a little bit of a head bouncing thing with strangers and that petrified me. She'd wear a hat to her car, stop going into the garden and it was just awful. So I built this enormous aviary. I didn't want to put him in it. And fortunately, for all the best reasons in the world, I didn't have to. But when I was left with this aviary, I looked at this vast empty space. And as George had found a place for everything. He would also sometimes find the place and then find the thing to put in the place. I have to just say light bulbs. He did this with light bulbs. He found a lovely hole under a floor that I was having worked on where they were putting pipes and so on in the utility room. And a few feet away from this hole in the floor, there was a plastic bowl full of all the old still working light bulbs that had been taken out of redundant light fittings. And I just saved them and reused them. And I thought the ex was using them up remarkably quickly, actually. (laughs) And then one day the dogs are barking by the hole and I go running over thinking, good grief, probably a rat or something. I look into the hole and George is down there sorting his stash. He had hidden 35 light bulbs, one of them even still in its box. (laughs) 
under the floorboards. And it was that thing that I think of looking at a space and then he thought, I think I'll fill that space and I know just what to put in it. So there was me looking at the aviary thinking, what am I going to do with this vast aviary? And it, it's, it's like 30 feet by 20 feet and 12 feet high. And it has a fish pond and it has raised flower beds. And it would have been a little magpie heaven. I wouldn't want to put him in it, but, you know, it was a little magpie heaven. And then I was given the first, after a couple of ducks and a couple of false starts with other things, um, got to read the book for that. Somebody gave me an owl with a damaged wing. And that started the ball rolling. Because then one owl, if you've got one owl, well, hey, two owls isn't much more trouble. And then if you've got two, you've got three. And, and eventually I made the old duck run into another aviary. So now I've got two aviaries. So it ballooned and it's George's fault. George's legacy was finding something that I loved and related to in a way I hadn't expected. If, he, if I hadn't adopted him, I would never have thought of having owls, and they did just happen. It was an accident, I guess. But it, it, you know, he did sort of change the course of the river of my life a bit. You know, it wasn't like he had a spade or a shovel, but I think he certainly put a few hook marks in the earth and the water. Well, the book is George, a Magpie Memoir. Frida Hughes, thank you so much for joining us today. Beth, thank you too. Thank you very much. That was Frida Hughes, author of the book, George, a Magpie Memoir, which was published by Avid Reader Press. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.